Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, you rouse yourself. You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks, Cammie. I know I heard from more of you, but you all know that you weren't going to say anything if Cammie didn't. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, okay, so today we're going to talk about Psalm 73. And by way of disclaimer at the beginning of this, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Uh, Chris and I were talking about it earlier this week, and we were sort of relating over the fact that this is one of the first Psalms for each of us that really grabbed our heart. And the reasons for that are, are so many but it just brings you to such a high place. And some, something interesting about this psalm is that there's so much there. You could dig into this psalm for much more time than we have available today. And so one thing that's intimidating about preaching on a passage that you love so much is there's so much that's on the cutting room floor that I know I'm leaving behind. So I'm praying today that you will get, by God's grace, 
what's really here in Psalm 73 and that it would bless you, but just know there's so much more there. Another thing that's amazing about this psalm in particular is not only could you dig into this psalm for basically as long as you wanted, you could let this psalm dig into you for the rest of your life. And those are some of the things that I hope to be able to get into today. Some of those little bits of this psalm that we're actually going to be able to talk about. I'm hoping that you can take that with you, that this psalm will dig into you just as much as we can dig into it just a little bit. I'm hoping that what we get out of it will dig deeply into you for a very, very long time. Um, So let's pray to that effect and let's get started, okay? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that it is effective. We thank you that it is good. We thank you that it is infallible and that it is true. We pray just as, as you tell us that hearing your word gives faith, that you would give us faith that gives us life today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, One interesting thing about living in the age that we live in, which is so dominated by media, is just the number of YouTube videos, TikToks, podcasts, I don't know, other things that are dedicated to offering advice to us and offering how-tos for us. Because in many aspects of our lives, we recognize that we don't know how to do something. We don't know how to do what we want to do, and we need someone to show us. I mean, my, my dad can attest to this. He showed up today um, to visit. We bought a home recently, and I keep calling him um, because YouTube's wonderful but doesn't do everything. That, that said, we need someone to show us, and, and whether it's cooking, car maintenance, understanding mental health, whatever it happens to be, there's probably a resource somewhere on the internet that you could find that's going to help you learn how to do what you want to do. But here's the thing. Um, I want to tell you a story. I, I had a friend some years back who began attending the church I was going to because his marriage was in a really bad place. It was kind of falling apart. Um, and the people that he knew when he looked around, the people he knew who had the strongest marriages, there was one thing in common. They were all Christians. And so he talked to them, and he came to church and I was actually really glad about that. I, I love this guy. To this day, I would say he's one of the kindest, most generous people that I know. But I noticed something interesting. Something interesting that I noticed was that this desire to have a healthy marriage was really at the center of his faith. When the Bible contradicted what he was doing with his life, what would generally happen is he would generally come up with some alternative perspective. Well, that sounds nice. Maybe that's true. That probably works for you, but here's how I see it. When the Bible pushed him in another direction, it's like, no, I, I think this direction is another alternative way you could look at it. Um, even more important, when our discussions focused in on the gospel of unearned grace, something interesting happened. He always seemed to find an application to the message immediately rather than dig into the gospel of unearned grace. It's all about what Christ did for us. He immediately, almost like a spiritual tick, wanted to figure out, what do I do? What is this telling me to do? How do I use this? 
on the other hand, well, so on one hand, God was taking all the work off of his plate for him and he was doing it on his behalf. But I don't think he wanted that from God. On the other hand, rather than telling him the way to get a good life for himself, rather than telling him the principles to follow, the things that he should do to have the life that he really wants, God was telling him instead what a good life really was. And I'm not totally sure, but I don't think he wanted that. And so like many of us, I think he wanted to feel reasonably good and reasonably comfortable. And he thought God might know the way to do that. Many of us treat God or spirituality this way. We know that we often feel unfulfilled and we might even be aware that we sin. We might feel it in our hearts. And so we turn to religion for some sort of help in these areas. Maybe if there's really a God, he can help me live my life to the fullest. He knows everything. He must know the best way to live. But have you spotted the assumption underneath that approach to spirituality? The assumption is that religion, spirituality, and even God himself exist to give me my version of a fulfilling, comfortable life here and now. Do you see that? In other words, the assumption is that if you're doing it right, things should be working out. Maybe even more insidious, if things were working out, you must be doing it right. If things are working out, if you're doing it right, you should feel like a good person. You should be happy. You should be comfortable. That's the assumption behind that approach, isn't it? But what we're going to see in Psalm 73 is that unless we are motivated by a heart that sees God as our true gain, we will never have the kind of joy we were made to have. On the one hand, if we have everything we want, we may be happy, but our happiness will be short-lived. At the very most, it could last until we die. The psalmist believes that that's going to be the case with the wicked. But it stops then. If we have everything we want, our happiness will be short-lived. On the other hand, probably most of us are in this bucket. If we don't have everything we want, on some level, we will, will be bitter and miserable. That's why rules, advice, a motivational speech will never help us in the way we need help. We cannot treat our souls like a job that needs a YouTube how-to. It will not work. We're solving the wrong problem if we treat our souls in that way. So if you're here today and you are hoping to learn how to be a better person, I'm sorry to say that if I do this right, you're going to be disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. But if you're here today and you're looking for a savior instead, I believe Psalm 73 is just what the doctor ordered. There are two main characters in Psalm 73. And, and the first character we're going to see is the wicked. Okay, the wicked, in short, in one sentence, this is, what, this is why it goes so long. Every time I say in short and in one sentence, I do three sentences. 
before it to preface it. But in, in short, here's what the wicked is. The wicked is the one who looks to God's laws and says, nah. The wicked blatantly goes the other way. Not into that. I don't want that. That's the wicked. And then there's the psalmist. The psalmist is interesting because the psalmist believes that he's basically a good spiritual person. You know, the psalmist probably makes casseroles for his neighbors. You know, he probably helps them change their oil. He's a nice guy doing the right things. The spiritual person, instead of looking to God's laws and saying, nah, not into that, that's not my thing. The spiritual person instead looks to God's laws or looks to a spiritual way of living or looks to being more or less good and says, now that's something I can use to get what I really want. The spiritual person sees righteous living as a way to exploit the laws of the universe for his or her own gain. And when you look closely enough, you realize that both of them ultimately want the same thing. Neither the wicked nor the psalmist here really sees God as a beautiful and worthy God of their desires and affection. Both of them look to comfort, wealth, and pleasure in this life here and now, and they say, that is the goal. The difference is the wicked has it and the psalmist doesn't. That's really the main difference. The way they do it may be the opposite, but make no mistake, they want the same exact thing. So neither one can be fixed. Wherever you find yourself today, neither one of these people can be fixed without some disruptive force invading the deepest and most intimate parts of who they are and changing them at the heart level. That's why we did our reading from the law that we did today. You may think that if you don't sleep around, you're sexually pure, but Jesus revealed to us, no, anyone who's lusted has committed adultery. Is adultery worse when you do it physically? Yes, but the heart's the same. One heart expresses itself, the other doesn't. The heart is the same, okay? That's the idea. Neither one can be fixed without some disruptive force invading the deepest and most intimate parts of who they are and changing them at the heart level. And the good news is this, there is a disruptive force just like that. It can invade us in exactly this way. And it's not an encouraging word to make you feel good. And it's not a method to follow and change your life in 12 steps. It's not a guru. This disruptive force is a person and it's God himself who becomes for us everything we cannot be and everything we refuse to be for ourselves. The psalmist tells us this good news by telling us his very own story. And his story has three parts. The first part is disordered, deadly desires. Okay? So when we, when we look at this first portion of our psalm here, we may look at it and see, think, oh, these are all the things that I shouldn't be like. Don't do that. Okay? Realize he's just describing disordered deadly desires, the way his heart really is, and he can't even help it because he really wants a certain thing. Okay, so that's part one, disorder, deadly desires. Part two is the destination of the wicked. Eventually, the psalmist's eyes open up and he sees where the wicked will go. They're in one place today, they'll be another place tomorrow. Okay? 
And the final point, the final part of this psalmist story is hope for today and hope for every tomorrow. If we only look at the destination, you may burn out and give up before you ever get there. So you need hope for today. If you only have hope for today, what about forever? The psalmist leaves us with hope for today and hope for every tomorrow. So let's get into Psalm 73. Where does it begin? The psalmist begins this psalm by affirming that God is good in his nature and that God does good to a particular type of person. God does good to the pure. In other words, God is good and God does good. What does he say? He says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he, he starts off in a good way, but he does it very briefly for one verse only. And he starts off in a good way by talking about God. God is good. Not only is God good himself, but he's good to the pure in heart. We're not going to spend any time on what does he mean by Israel, anything like that. Let's just make it enough to say God is good to the pure in heart. Okay, let's have that be the summary. However, he makes it clear very, very quickly that he hasn't answered every question about God's goodness. Namely, he hasn't answered the question of whether or not God is good to him. If God is good, can he even be good to him? Would be an interesting question. God is good, and God shows his goodness by being good to the pure in heart. And so he sets up this trajectory. What's the most important thing? That God is good. What's the next most important thing? The heart of a person. What you want, what you desire. That's the trajectory he sets us up on here. And then he immediately turns to his heart. And he shows us that he is on a dangerous path. You see, we tend to think that in order to really be bad, like the kind of bad worth getting bad things, you have to do really, really bad things. Hitler was bad, I'm not bad, right? But look at what the psalmist said. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. A Jew is saying this. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So on the one hand, we see that God is very, very good. On the other hand, you see that the psalmist is different. He was on a slippery path that he was sure to fall off of because he was envious of the arrogant when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. And so you might expect the psalmist to say something like this. I was on dangerously shaky ground because I was being tempted so strongly to commit some sin. I was being tempted to lie. I was being tempted to steal. I was being tempted to hurt a person. Does he say that? Is that what he says? He does not say that. What does he say? Instead, he says something that should be surprising to us. The thing that's putting him in danger isn't that he wants to be wicked, actually. And how often do we let ourselves off the hook? I'm trying to do well. I want to be a good person. It's not that he wants to be wicked that's putting him in danger. Rather, it's that he wants the good things God would call these good things, actually, most of the time. He's in danger because he wants the good things that the wicked have. That's what's putting him in danger. He's not even being tempted to any external sins. Okay. 
a layer of our heart has been pulled back and maybe we've been exposed. We have to be very, very careful when we find envy in our hearts because we may think that the thing we're desiring is a good thing, but when we envy, we're often living in such a short-sighted way that we begin to willfully ignore the bad things that come along with the good things that we want and are pursuing. We might even sound when we're envying the wicked like we're judging the wicked. That's the ironic part. You know, maybe we should be judging them for their wickedness. Maybe that would be the right thing to do. But the reality, if we look at the psalmist here, if we look at our own hearts, is that instead, we're not judging them for their wickedness. We're just mad that they got all the good stuff and we didn't. So a, one good measuring stick for our time and place might be this. When you see a celebrity pop up somewhere, television, phone, newsfeed, whatever, when you see uh, an, an influencer, when you see a reality star, how do you respond when you see these people? Now, if, if you're one kind of person, you might say or feel or think, wow, how'd they get there? I need to follow those steps. That's what I need to do. If that's you, you're probably more like the people that the psalmist is calling the wicked. Don't worry. We're all going there sometime. But if that's you, that, that's probably who you would relate more to. For people like that, comfort, happiness, pleasure, those are very important. And morality, good, righteous living can take a backseat to those things. Okay, I don't want to be that person. Hopefully I'm the other person. Don't pass judgment too quickly. If you're another kind of person, the kind of person the psalmist was, and honestly, the kind of person who tends to end up in church, you might look down your nose on that person. When Kim Kardashian shows up on something you're looking at, you might look down your nose and you might say, that's disgusting. I would never put my body on display like that. I would never sell out to corporations for money like that. I would never exploit my audience for personal gain like that. And if that's you, morality, justice, feeling like a good person are probably very important to you. But the revelation in Psalm 73 is that both people need saving. You see, it's obvious that the wicked needs saving. But the surprising thing that we see here is that the religious person needs saving too. The religious person's rottenness actually comes out not in the things that he does, but in what happens when he sees the prosperity of the wicked. When rather than recoiling, he says, why do they have those things and I don't? They both need saving because regardless of what they do on the outside, they both love the same things on the inside. The desires of our hearts are the seeds which bear fruit in every aspect of our lives more important than what I'm doing is what I'm wanting. And what we see in Psalm 73 is that wanting the good things that the wicked have creates major blind spots and it inevitably leads to compromise. Look at what the psalmist says in verses four through nine. We'll read through them really quickly. He's talking about the wicked whom he's envying. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are, and they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, how do they respond to their prosperity? 
Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They have more food than they need. They oppress other people. They're overflowing with both goods and hatred because of their prosperity. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. So this is what the psalmist says in verses four through nine. And as bad as the wicked look here, he's telling us something important. When he tells us that he's envious of the prosperity of the wicked, he's envious of the arrogant when he sees their prosperity, one thing we can't say is that he doesn't realize that they're wicked. Oh, he's told us. He sees it fully. He knows how terrible they are. And he looks at them and he says, I want to be just like you. It goes even deeper, which may be the key to his heart's major sin and dysfunction. He looks at these arrogant, wicked, prosperous people. And when he sees that their wickedness has led them to prosperity and his supposed righteousness has led him down another path, what does he do? He complains. He cries out and he says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He thinks pretty highly of himself, doesn't he? All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Has he though? The one on the slippery path whose steps are about to fail him, has he kept his heart clean? Nevertheless, maybe you can relate to this. It, personally, in my life, I'll, I'll tell you something about myself, something about my marriage. Um, I'm the kind of person, personality-wise, here's, I mean, here's where I'm like the psalmist. You should never think that someone's personality makes them good, okay? Personality-wise, I love serving other people. Um, I, I like to be the guy doing the chores around the house. You know, I like to be the guy helping my friends out with things they need help with. And I show my wife love quite often in that way. And the truth is that there's a part of me that wants to do that for her because I truly do love her. But there's another part of my heart. And that part of my heart comes out when she starts treating me in a way that I don't like. All of a sudden, instead of I do these things freely for you because I love you, it becomes... How dare you? Did you not see what I've been doing for you? Did you not see how hard I've been working for you? Not a free gift, is it? What becomes abundantly clear from the psalmist is that he's much like me when I sin toward my wife. He's not serving God because he loves God and wants more of him. Instead, he's doing what he believes God wants him to do because he loves the things that God can give him. In essence, he believes that he can use his obedience to make God indebted to him so that God has to give him what he really wants. That's why he's so angry. And when God doesn't give him those things, he throws a fit. And so here's a dichotomy in external behavior that we see that shows same exact heart. The wicked person uses the gifts of God to find joy apart from God. And whatever he may think he's doing, 
the religious person, the spiritual person, the good person, uses the laws of God to make God his butler. I've obeyed you, and now here's what you owe me. This is worth thinking about. In your life, what things do you think you are serving? What things do you think you find ultimately valuable? It, one, one way of looking at this in our super polarized environment right now, what sorts of people do you claim not to be when you want to feel good about yourself? Or what sort of person do you want, claim to be when you want to condemn another person? I'm this kind of person, right? You think you're serving these things. You think those things are what you find ultimately wonderful. What sort of behaviors are admirable to you? Here's the thing. When things don't go your way, how do you actually respond to, toward those things which you think are at the base of your heart's desires? When things don't go your way, what complaints do you make? What outcomes do you complain about not getting in light of your good behavior? Whatever that thing is, whatever you're complaining about not having, that is ultimately the thing that your heart finds beautiful. To you, that thing is what your heart is placing its hope in. It might be obvious. Money, house, wealth, it might just be peace and quiet and being left alone. Whatever that thing is, that's what your heart is placing its hope in. Even if you feel like living a certain way makes you a good person, why you're doing what you're doing is just as important, if not more. And if you're doing good things in order to get some sort of good outcome, that outcome that you're trying to achieve is really your God. That's who you're serving. And so we see that it is not ultimately a certain way of living that God is interested in from us. Instead, God is interested more than anything else in the desires of our hearts. That's how we're going to be judged. That's Listen, this is what makes this section of Psalm 73 so important. It's not that it's pointing out the wrong way to be so you can figure out the right way to be. It actually leaves us in a sort of devastating place, but it shows us our hearts, okay? We need to see our hearts as they really are, or we will never be dealing with the reality of our situation. So don't look at this and say, okay, Step one, don't envy the prosperity of the wicked. Step two, don't be fat and mean like the wicked. We can't do that. Instead, look at your heart. Find, let this psalm dig deep into you and find what's there. If in one sense we miss the point because we don't dig deep enough into ourselves and we look at behaviors instead of the heart, in another sense, we miss the point because we don't look far enough ahead in time. It can be helpful sometimes to consider not only what a person's saying, but to consider what unspoken beliefs anything I say is actually standing on if it's going to be true. Okay, that might be a little confusing. Let me unpack that a little bit. One unspoken be belief that we've already considered in this psalm Something the psalmist believed without saying, without telling us explicitly that he believes this, one unspoken belief that we've already considered is this. If I act in a good and moral way, God owes me prosperity and comfort. The psalmist never said those words, but it's clear. It's here. You cannot deny it. It's there. 
Okay, so that's an unspoken belief that he's holding. And, and he's standing on that belief for everything he thinks and feels. Okay? The psalmist has laid this belief to waste up until now by making it clear that underneath all of his good works, his, his heart actually wants all the same things that the wicked want. And you know, like they say, if it walks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, it's probably a duck. If it wants everything that wicked people want, probably the wicked. It doesn't matter how nice he is. Another unspoken belief in this psalm is actually less morally condemning, but it's just as dangerous forever. This belief says this, if I really belong to God, I will be blessed here and now. If I really belong to God, I will be blessed here and now. That is a belief that he's standing on. That's why he's so appalled when he says, I'm a Jew. I'm one of God's people. How could he have it and I don't? Okay? But if we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to this earth, bore a body, bore with us, and suffered and died, we should know that this is not true. If we've read the prophets who were hated, often killed, we should know that this is not true. If we've read the book of Job, who got singled out by God for being so good, and then because of that had everything taken away from him, we should know that this is not true. Yet, while few of us would say this unspoken belief with our mouths, many of us live day to day with bitterness, discontentment, and deep, deep disappointment. Because deep down, we believe that this is true. We believe that God is meant to be our secret weapon in our own self-improvement project. Others of us who are experiencing good outcomes in our lives right now may see the upward trajectory of our lives. And we may think that we know where it's leading. In other words, look at, look at all of the outcomes in my life. You should be trying to do what I'm doing. I probably do that quite often. Look how good I am. Look how nice I am. Be like me. You may see your own lives as exemplary. And, and here's how you know if you're doing that in a way that is dangerous spiritually. If this is you, your primary relationship to God is probably gratitude. Oh, gratitude, that's good, isn't it? Yes, but what are you grateful for? Okay. Typically, if this is you, your primary relationship to God is probably gratitude, but not for your salvation, for him dealing with your sin and giving you the righteousness of Christ. It's probably not for eyes that finally see his glory when all you could see is how great the things he made are before. It's probably gratitude for giving you a beautiful home and a wonderful family and a solid job. If 99% of the time, this is where your heart goes in your relationship to God, you may be in danger of being in this category. It's not bad to thank God for those things. Please don't hear that. But if this is your primary way of relating to God, there may need to be some heart exploration here. There may need to be some eyes opened to what the real prize is. What we need to know that you cannot believe the gospel of Jesus Christ 
while at the same time believing that your station in this life has any bearing on your final destination. Think about this. What indication could dying naked on a cross ever give that Jesus would now be sitting on the throne of heaven? The indicators aren't there, but there he is today. And so one element of stress for the psalmist here, that's what makes this a psalm of lamentation. Even though he's calling out his own sin so often, it's still a psalm of lamentation. One element of stress for the psalmist is considering the prosperity of the wicked who do not deserve their prosperity in light of the suffering of God's people. How does he line these things up? And he can't, and so he becomes bitter. But by God's grace, this is where the psalmist's eyes begin to open. To him up until now, the final destination that he's placing his hope in is prosperity here and now on the earth. But earthly prosperity is short-lived and it's a transient thing. It will not be here forever. And so God caused this psalmist to see that neither he nor the wicked were in their final destination. Instead, they were both still walking the path. So God in his grace shows the psalmist that neither he nor the wicked are in their final destination. And furthermore, God caused the psalmist to see that the wicked may be enviable now, but their finish line will be worse than his here and now today. They're not going anywhere good unless something changes. It's a little bit like seeing the Enron executives in handcuffs. When you see their end, it's easier not to envy their present. But we need to notice something really important here. And that's this. The, the language that the psalmist uses in Psalm 73 forces us to look at something about him. The language of Psalm 73 forces us to see that for all his religiosity, he really started off as one of the wicked. By this point, you're probably not surprised that I'm saying that. He says, truly you set them on slippery paths. But do you remember how he describes himself at the beginning of this psalm? Truly you set them on slippery paths. Okay, let's, let's look at verse two. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. That's the same path. They're on the same path. If he hadn't already made it clear, there should be no mistake now. The heart that envies the wicked but appears to do good is no different than the heart that has its wickedness on full display. When you put your wickedness on full display, you hurt more people. But when you keep it shut up, you're just as wicked. They look different on the outside. The wicked hurts more people here and now, but both of them are out for themselves in their own way. And because of this, both the wicked person and the religious person, the spiritual person, the good person, are on the same path. And unless someone takes you off of that path, someone has to grab you, okay? You can't pull yourself off of that path. Unless somebody takes you off of that path, your feet are going to slip. So the psalmist begins to see this. In the beginning of his awakening is that he stops wanting what the wicked have. But here's the thing. This is not enough. It's not enough to not want what the wicked have. You can't just not want things. You can't just not do things. Maybe if you came from a really moral, religious background, maybe your main way of trying to follow God is don't cuss. Don't have sex until you're married. Don't 
drink to excess. Maybe don't drink at all. Maybe everything that you think of in terms of obeying God has to do with something that you don't do. That will never be good enough. It's been said before by many others, and I'm going to say it again today. Nobody ever loved God because he didn't want to go to hell. Nobody ever loved God because he didn't want to go to hell. You might be familiar with John Piper's comments on why he hates the prosperity gospel. This is kind of a nerdy thing. There was this thing in like the, I don't know, late aughts called the Sermon Jam that went around YouTube for a little while where people would take little snippets of sermons, maybe three to five minutes, and they'd put like cigarettes, sound and music behind it to like really pump you up. There was, there was one like this. If you look it up, John Piper, Prosperity Gospel, it's there. Um, it's sweet too. You should, you should look it up even though it's pretty nerdy. Um, you might have heard this before. Here's what, here's what he asks in this comment. He asks, when was the last time that any American, African, Asian ever said, Jesus is all satisfying because you drove a BMW? Never, he says. He says, they'll say, did Jesus give you that? Well, I'll take Jesus. Give me Jesus all day if he's giving me BMWs. And in the same way, sometimes if we stop at no longer envying the wicked, we may be stopping short. We may just be saying, did Jesus take you away from wanting bad things? I see all the terrible things that wanting bad things has brought about in my life. I'll take Jesus. Sure. It doesn't mean we want Jesus. So if the choice is between heaven and hell, anyone who understands what that choice even is, is going to choose heaven. Or so we think, but it's not that simple. You see, we choose hell every day when we love sin. In loving sin, God made us to be bringers of heaven to this earth. That's really what Adam and Eve were all about. Eventually, we read Revelation together. That's what's going to happen. His church is going to be with him, bringing heaven to earth. But that's not what we love. And so instead, we bring a different kingdom. We bring the kingdom of hell to earth. In loving sin, we bring hell to our worlds, just like the wicked do. In Galatians 5, Paul calls this the works of the flesh. In other words, the, our natural works, what comes out of us naturally if God does not intervene. And so our sinful hearts are full of the power of hell, and hell is what they bring about in the world, regardless of what we think it might look like. So not wanting to suffer for eternity has never kept even one person out of hell. Looking at the wicked's end and saying, I don't want to go where they're going, is never going to make us love God. So what do we need? I mean, if you look at it, in fact, the heart that complains in the face of suffering, like the psalmist does at the beginning of this psalm, it, it sounds a lot more like him when he's saying he's wicked than it does like him that we're going to see in a minute. Truly, truly loving God. What's needed to be plucked off the slippery path is a new heart that loves new things. Something more than the things that God created. God himself. And that's exactly what God gives to the psalmist in Psalm 73. And so before God changed his heart, the psalmist says he was bitter and brutish, like a beast toward God. In other words, his attitude was sour, his mind was like a beast, and his crooked heart made it so he simply couldn't think or feel the way that he should. His mind worked scientifically, biologically, the way that it was supposed to work, but he's never going to come to the conclusions he's supposed to come to because sin has warped it. That's what you and me are like. 
His attitude was sour. His mind was broken. He could never find God. So is the answer that we need to change our attitudes, that the psalmist needs to change his attitude and think better and more biblical thoughts? This could never be the answer. I would so much rather you walked away from this service understanding what I'm saying right now and thinking that I'm dead wrong than to have you walk away from today with the idea that I asked you to shape up, change your attitude, and think better thoughts about God. The psalmist could not do that. and We cannot do that because his hearts and our hearts don't want to naturally. You cannot do something that you do not want to do in some way. It's impossible. His mind was like a beast's mind, and we're no different. But God intervened. Whatever credit we may be tempted to give the psalmist here, he feels no such compulsion. Someone may be saying, wait, I read the whole psalm. He says that he's the one who went to the sanctuary. Yeah, who brought him to the sanctuary? How did he get there? He said, I was a beast towards you. And then he says, nevertheless, now this is the key. I was a beast towards you. Here he is not knowing God, not loving God, not wanting God. And in the midst of this, nevertheless, I am continually with you. Here he is on the slippery path. And where is God? God is there with him. This is how he got to the sanctuary to see God. God came to him. He feels no such compulsion to give himself credit for going to the sanctuary to hear from God. Because I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. If we understand this, not only will it be impossible for us to want what the wicked have, it will also be impossible for us to look down on the wicked as if they're something less than we are. Because it was God who intervened here. And it was God who intervened with anybody who loves God. If we read this psalm and walk away with the impression that we need to clean up our act, we're totally missing the point because we can't do that. And so whether we're violent or rich like the wicked or suffering and poor like the psalmist, the crooked loves of our hearts will destroy us and everything around us. And sin will so twist our thinking that we're never going to find God. So what's the remedy? If it's not being better, acting different, if it's not shaping up and changing our attitudes so we're not so bitter and sour toward God, what is it? The remedy that the psalmist gives is seeing God in his mercy. And he invites you to do that. If you can't do that yourself, look at what he says here. Look and see God in his mercy. This is what changes hearts. This is the gospel that is powerful for for salvation. The psalmist sees that even when he was no more able to love God than a beast would be able to read a novel, God was with him. And his heart changes. He starts wanting new things. When he sees that God stayed with him to do good to him, even while he pined after the prosperity of the wicked and looked to God and said, why do you give them the good things when I deserve the good things? It was when he was doing this, God changed him from the inside out. God changed his heart. God did the impossible. Where he once acted religiously, where he once acted good, but loved all the same things that the wicked loved. Now, look at what he says. And I believe that these two verses, 25 and 26, are the crux, the meat of this whole passage. This is where everything was going. What does he say? He says, whom have I in heaven but you? 
So I look up into heaven and who, who's there that I care about that's a possession worth having? God and nobody else. Okay, now turn to where his mind was before. And on earth, there's nothing that I desire besides you. What about the prosperity of the wicked? He still doesn't have that. He still may be suffering. Does he have God? He's seen that God has never left him. On earth, there's nothing that I desire besides you. This is a heart that has been born again. My heart, my flesh may fail. They do, don't they? His has, hasn't it? He spent most of this psalm condemning his heart because it fails. My heart and my flesh may fail. I will die someday. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What's a portion? The portion is the thing that is given to you, which you receive, okay? He wanted his portion to be what the wicked have. Now, God is the strength of my heart, which fails, and my portion forever. He's everything that I would ever want, and he's going to give himself to me forever. In other words, no matter where I look, to the heavens or to the earth, to my body or to my soul, the only thing that I consider worth having is God himself. And so the psalmist went from a carrot and stick religious experience that depended on his effort and made demands of God in return to looking up, looking out, and looking in and seeing that even when everything fails, God never fails. And this can seem high-minded, over-spiritual. Many of us just rob statements of this, of their truth, and make them cute sayings that you're supposed to affirm. We call that a platitude. You don't believe it, but you know you're supposed to, right? You know, when we sing, when we sing songs like, the fullness of your love will always be enough. Do we sing that because we think that's the right thing to say, or is it really true? It can seem high-minded or over-spiritual to say things like this. It can seem unrealistic, but I don't think it is. Now look at your life. Look at the things that you depend on for happiness. This is where the psalm needs to dig into you once again. Do you need to be treated fairly to be happy? I often do. I get so mad when I feel treated unfairly. I remember the one time I ever got detention in high school, a kid in the period before me had written something on my desk. And then my teacher noticed it after I sat down. I was livid, but she didn't believe me because she's like, why didn't you tell me that it was there? I need to be treated fairly to be happy. Do you need to drive a luxury car to be happy? Do you need to feel respected by others in your workplace to be happy? Do you need a clean house to be happy? What happens to you when these things fail? And I'm sure that they have failed you before. Maybe you go into a shame spiral and you just can't stand who you are. Maybe you work your fingers to the bone to try to be good enough. Maybe you stew because your house or your car don't reflect on who you are the way you think they should. Maybe you get lost in a fantasy because you cannot stand to be uncomfortable and the world outside you is uncomfortable, so you check out. Everything fails. Money fails, people fail, my body fails, my heart fails. I'm not good enough and I won't live forever. And the same is true of you. God never fails. When the things we love fail to fulfill us, our most natural answer is to act like the psalmist at the beginning of this psalm 
and look to the things around us for happiness. And when this works, sometimes it does. It will only ever be temporary. The maximum end of this is death. It could last that long. You could be happy till you die. That's still temporary. The gospel of our generation is actually very different than our natural answer to to look around and try to be happy. The gospel of our generation tells us to do the opposite. It says, look inside, find yourself, accept yourself, be yourself, create yourself. And this is delusion. Why am I insecure? Because I'm not good. I'm incompetent. I'm sinful. If I look inside of myself and I have anything like good vision, I'm not going to come out of that very strong. Okay? So this is the gospel of our generation, but it is delusion because my heart and my flesh do fail. And when I get clear eyes about this, it is absolutely devastating. Without a gospel, without Christ, it's almost too much to bear to even think about. When the things you love most in this world get stripped away, and when you look inside yourself and see nothing but sin and failure, what are you left with? What are you left with? The psalmist finds that as he desires God, God becomes the strength of his heart, even when his heart fails. He's not left with nothing. Even if everything he loves is taken away and he fundamentally fails even himself, morally, in terms of his competencies, in terms of working hard enough, in terms of having enough, even if he fundamentally fails himself, he still has hope because while he used to seek his portion in wealth and comfort, as he desires God, he finds that God satisfies him in any situation. And finally, he says, you know, the wicked, they're not going anywhere good. And then he says, but for me, It's good to be near God. I have made you my refuge. That's that's astounding that he would say that. That someone who made it very clear that he's a wicked man would say, but for me, it's good to be near God. If God is good, how could it be good for him to be near God? That has to be bad, doesn't it? What does God, who does God do good to? Do you remember from verse one? The pure in heart. Was he the pure in heart? No. And so this, this is a mystery which was only revealed in the gospel. This is a tension that is only solved by the life, death, burial, resurrection, and current reigning and interceding for us of our Lord Jesus Christ. If God is good to the pure in heart, how could he be good to the psalmist? And how could he be good to us? There's no other answer other than Jesus. Because Christ stood in the place of the wicked, those of us who hope in him can now take refuge in God. Christ, he said, yeah, Barabbas, take him, go free. I'll stand in his place. Condemn me like the criminal. That's why God can be good to us. Because of Christ, When our flesh fails, God steps in today, here and now, through his Holy Spirit, to be enough for us. Because of Christ, when our hearts fail, God never leaves our side. 
And only because of Christ can we, as the psalmist did, look to God in his mercy and find him beautiful. And that is the most important thing. We said this lays bare that it's all about our hearts. You cannot make yourself love God, but God can. God can make you love him. You can look at him in the gospel and he can do a work in your heart to where now you find him beautiful. And so in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's the good news for you from Psalm 73. God knows your suffering. God knows your failing heart. God knows that you envy the wicked and love comfort more than him. But if you're his, if you are his, he will never leave you. And notice I didn't say, if you cling to him. If you are his, he will never leave you and you will cling to him as a result. If you're his, he will never leave you. He will be your strength when your strength fails. We, we have a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. If you are saved, you will never at one point walk away from Christ forever. Why? He will be your strength when your strength fails. He will give you a new heart when your natural heart clings on to death and he will be your safe place in any circumstance. The question from Psalm 73 is this. This is how it challenges us. Is your spirituality about finding something that makes your life work better? Or is it about knowing a God worth treasuring? Today, he's calling you to look at him in all of his strength, and all of his beauty, and all of his desirability, and depend on him. Will you do this? To say yes to this call, we need more than help. We need more than method. We need more than guidance and technique. We need a total heart transplant. God needs to open our eyes and change our loves. Ultimately, the thing that God offers us is himself. See, the whole, Bi the whole Bible is a story of humanity running away from God and toward his gifts as the ultimate prize. It's also a story of God running after us to give us himself, even to the point of giving up his body for us on a cross. And so the truth is, if you don't want God, he will never satisfy you because he's going to give you himself and you're not into that. But if you do want God, if he's the thing your heart clings to and longs for, you will have a happiness and a strength that can never be taken away, no matter the circumstances. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no dot com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.